It is interesting how, throughout history, humanity has ascribed different personalities to the powers and forces in the world around them. For the ancients, the open sky was a person, the vast stretches of the earth was a person, the forest, the rivers, the sea, the sun, moon, and the stars, the raging storm, ravaging disease, mountains spewing fire, were all persons. Even abstract concepts like justice, wisdom, commerce, family, or war were also persons. Belief in gods has been a near-perpetual and universal feature of human cultures and societies. So, what is that like to view the world this way? And is there a very good reason why we do so? And more to the point, what is it like when you perceive persons not only in this or that thing in the world, but begin to relate to all of reality as who rather than a what that converses with you and walks with you? Because that is the question that the Christian Bible wrestles with. The entire Bible is in that sense an extended account of how we learn to relate personally to reality, how we learn who God is, step by step, generation by generation. The story of Abraham and Sarah is an account of how that happened in their own generation at the scale of their single family. Genesis follows their lifelong journey with ups and downs, open roads and dead ends, warm sunny days and dark dreary nights through which they came to know God personally one step at a time. So let's return to their story in this episode of What Do You Mean God Speaks? where we explore important ideas, insights and stories in Christianity for the skeptics who want to understand religion to the Christians who have questions about their own beliefs and everyone in between. I am Paul Sungo-jung, and this is our fifth episode of the third season, How We Begin to Personally Relate to God. There's an idea that emerged in the recent decades in the cognitive sciences that religious belief in deities came about because of the way our human mind functions. According to this view, we perceive the world with what is called the hyperactive agency detection device. What this means is that whenever something happens, we tend to believe that it was an intentional action of some being. So say you're walking on a hiking trail and you hear a sudden sound in the bushes. You quickly turn, instinctively expecting an animal or even a person to appear. But it was just the wind or a nut falling from a tree. So why was it your first instinct to think it was an animal or a person? Because in evolution, it is crucial for creatures to detect the action of other creatures, such as a mountain lion brushing against the bushes as it stalks its prey. So our minds are constantly trying to detect other agents. In fact, this function is hyperactive. Here's a similar idea that may be easier to grasp. You know how we tend to see faces in things, maybe in rock formation or even stains on the wall? We know they aren't faces, but somehow they look like faces to us. That's because facial recognition is a dedicated and specialized function in human cognition. That is, whenever we perceive anything, our mind or our brain is separately and hyperactively checking if there are faces in whatever that we are seeing. And it flags down anything that even sort of looks like a face. And that's because human beings have evolved to be social creatures, and facial cues are our key source of information of what is going on around us. 
But just as with wall stains or say rocks on Mars, we may see faces where there are no faces. Likewise, due to our hyperactive agency detection, we may mistakenly believe that there is some personal agent behind what's happening even when there aren't. This has led some critics of religion to suggest that humanity came to believe in deities in a similar way. Our mind, hyperactively searching for agents behind the things that happen in our world, leads us to believe that there are gods where there are none. And of course, this is quite possible. Our mind may be leading us astray. However, just because we can be mistaken about something does not automatically mean that we are mistaken. I mean, consider again how we see faces. We do sometimes see faces even when there are no faces. But most of the time, we see faces because they are faces. In fact, it's quite remarkable how we can recognize that something is a face since faces of people can look quite different from each other. Not only that, we recognize depiction of faces even in crude drawings or carvings. We can do this even with the faces of other creatures which can be vastly different from us, uh, say such as lobsters or ants. And if we are mistaken, we can usually correct ourselves. Likewise, our agency detection function is remarkably developed. So while it may be that our hyperactive agency detection has led us to believe that there are gods, it may also be that in doing so, we are sensing something that is genuinely true about our world. Now, perhaps we can say with some confidence that a rock or say a mountain behind your house is not some super powerful person. But the Christian idea of God is not about some all-powerful entity in a rock or a mountain or even the sky. It is rather about reality as a whole. And reality includes us, conscious, personal, and active beings. So again, remember what we said in the first season? Whatever we say about God are analogies. They are the best that we can say with the language available to us. And some analogies are better than others. So saying that God is personal is saying something like reality as a whole is much more like a personal active being than like some impersonal inert mass. And that is why we should relate to reality personally. Now, according to the Genesis creation account, that is why humanity was created, to form a personal relationship with God. That in turn means what God spoke to bring humanity into existence in Genesis included the capacity of human beings to perceive and relate to God in a personal way. We can think about that point in this way. In the first season, we examined how for Christianity, the laws of nature that govern everything, every such law, including the principles of evolution, is the logos of God, what God speaks. And that in turn means the evolutionary process that produced our hyperactive agency detection is also God speaking. Now we've evolved as a species that possess the kind of rationality that enables us to recognize a reality with structures and principles and laws is rather like a rational language or the logos. And likewise, we've evolved with a hyperactive agency detection that enables us to perceive reality as a personal active being that speaks to us rather than some mindless dead heap. For Christianity, that was all God speaking, so that we'd evolved to recognize God. 
In fact, this is more or less the view of Justin Barrett, the experimental psychologist who was the first to propose the concept of hyperactive agency detection device. Barrett is a devout Christian who firmly believes in God, a professor at the Graduate School of Psychology at Fuller, which is a Christian seminary. When someone asked him if his scientific account of why we tend to believe that gods exist undermines his Christian belief in God, he replied, If science presents a convincing account of why I believe that my wife loves me, would that mean that I should stop believing that my wife loves me? He instead believes that God created humanity with hyperactive agency detection so that we are able to detect and form a personal relationship with God. But there is an aspect of humanity's belief in gods that our discussion of hyperactive agency detection so far does not quite cover. People do not merely believe that there are gods. They hear their voices and interact with them. The powers and forces in the world are not merely persons. They have personalities. These deities can be strong, stern, severe, wise, cunning, courageous, calm, capricious, cruel, and so on. So why do these deities have these specific personalities? Well, in the previous episodes, we observed how there are for lack of better words, voices that speak to us, voices that represent the kind of life or patterns of actions that we can follow. So for example, when you feel you are wronged by someone, you may find yourself with conflicting voices to choose from, one that calls you to consider the matter fairly and justly in response, or the one that entices you instead toward violence and vengeance, or perhaps even one that pulls you back fearfully, telling you to just ignore it and pretend that it never happened. And these aren't just about what courses of actions you can follow. Each has an emotive force and character, a distinct personality. So the calm yet stern call to fairness, or an angry clamor for vengeance, or the fearful tug for retreat. And when you choose one of these voices, you do not just follow their actions. You take on their personality, at least for that moment, and that will change who you are accordingly. Now, those of us living today tend to think that these voices are just part of us. Our motivation, our thoughts, and maybe different aspects of our personality. And that's true in a way, they are part of us. But there's more to it than that, and you can review why in the 10th episode of the first season, What Do You Mean God Speaks To You? One point we considered back then was that these voices and the pattern of actions that they represent speak not only to you, but to everyone. The analogy I gave was that it is like an app you download on your phone. So the app is inside your phone, but it's also from somewhere outside your phone. The voices that speak to you are sort of like that. They are inside you, but that is merely your personal version of something larger which exists beyond you. And gods that human beings believed in are sort of like that as well. They speak from within you, but they're also inseparable from the larger aspect of reality out there, principles or values which define and structure our world and experience, such as order, wisdom, life, justice, war, and so on. So back to why each deity has the kind of personality that they do. How did people ascribe a particular personality to a particular deity? Well, there are likely many, many ways that they have done so, including literary imagination and storytelling, but there is at least one way that I think we should closely explore. 
and we can describe it this way. Each god tends to manifest the personality of human individuals whose way of life embodies the essence of their particular domain. Now, what do I mean by that? Okay, take war for example. What is war? We can present a long list of things that constitute wars, political or social factors, tactics, strategies, logistics, arms, as well as violence, valor, terror, cruelty, and death. But war is what certain kinds of people do. It is carried out by men of arms, skilled in combat, violent, perhaps cruel, rather like the Greek god of war, Ares. The course of war is directed by those with wisdom and valor, rather like the Greek goddess Athena. Their personality reveals what war is. Take another example, justice. We can list many different examples of justice, specific actions or laws or practices which are just. We may even try to formulate a philosophical definition. Try, because we are still working on that. But justice that we actually experience in our lives are what people do. It is a just person that generates every just action, practice, or law. So we can say that the personality of such person is the personality of justice. And people connected these personalities to the voices that have been speaking to them. Oh, but we may ask at this point, I suppose, uh, what about the gods of nature? How would this apply to people believing that natural objects like, say, thunder and rain or the sun or the sky had personality? Again, there are likely many different reasons why people ascribe various personalities to things in nature. However, there is one reason among them that I think is relevant to what we just considered. So in the second season, we learn how for the ancient world, natural things in the world represented larger ideas. So water wasn't just water and it certainly was not H2O. Water represented, or rather water was, the substance of life and chaos, or as I put it in contemporary terms, water was the substance of possibilities. The natural world in this sense was a kind of a symbolic language for more abstract and grander ideas such as order and chaos, power and sovereignty, justice and retribution, and so on. And the gods would manifest the personality of the people who embodied such ideas in a concrete way. So we finally come to this question. What about the god of Abrahamic religions such as Judaism and Christianity? What is the personality of that god and why? That question though poses a number of challenges. See, other deities have a particular domain or a power, the god of war, the goddess of justice, the god of order, the goddess of life, and so on. But the Christian concept of god is not limited to any particular domain, but encompasses every domain and every power. So what's the problem? Well, for example, the personality of wisdom would be that of a wise person, and the personality of justice a just person, and so on. But what is the personality of, well, everything? After all, the concept of God is about reality as a whole. So the question is, what is the personality of reality, all of reality? And how would you even begin thinking about this? And this is where truth comes in. This is what we explored in the ninth episode of the first season. We seem to be doing quite a review of that season in this episode. So, Every truth is God speaking, and that is because 
all of reality is God speaking. Everything that happens, everything in the cosmos, every principle and law, every possibility that can ever come to be. So to learn the truth about any of these is the same thing as hearing God speak. And this is why the traditional formulation of God in Christian theology is that God is being itself, which is to say God is reality as a whole, and thus God is truth itself. And in that formulation, God is also goodness itself and beauty itself, but we'll leave that aside in this episode. Now, there is truth. Then there is truth that generates other truths. The second kind of truth is about what kind of person can learn or recognize truth, because knowing who such a person is will enable us to reach other truths. And this is not simply a question of intelligence, but also of moral character, since a genius can be prejudiced or be too proud to learn or lie or twist the truth. So every truth is God speaking, but a person who can teach us truth undistorted and whole, truths about reality, truths about what is good and meaningful and beautiful in life, and embody these truths in their lives is the best analogy available to us for God that speaks every truth. Their personality is the personality of truth, which in turn points to God that unfolds all of reality. And that becomes the first primary personal character of God that speaks to us. Among all the voices that speak within us, the voice that speaks most truthfully, undistorted and whole, manifests a personality that is closest to that of the Christian God. Of course, as it turns out, there are other aspects to this personality, but we'll get to that in other episodes. Still, there is one more critical question that remains. These personalities, uh, in the ways that we have considered so far, are simply a way for us to understand certain aspects of reality, or in the case of God, all of reality. It may be an interesting or even an insightful way to understand these things, that there is a kind of personality to war or justice or even reality as a whole. But in the end, these are still just lenses with which we see the world. And lenses don't really have their own will and purpose. They are not agents. Now, their voices may speak to us, but why should we believe that these voices are something more than just a particular way that we are experiencing reality? The point is, in what we consider so far in this episode, it is still all us who initiate this relationship. We hear the voice speak, we choose what to do, and we live them out. We are the agents. Reality unfolds what it unfolds, which is to say God speaks what God speaks, and we hear and act accordingly. There is no real conversation, no reciprocation, no interaction. But that means there is no genuine personal relationship. See, we are still missing a key piece to understand how the Bible describes humanity's relationship with God. And this is where the theme of the covenant, that is to say, the theme of God making a personal promise to people, becomes central to the biblical narratives, especially from the account of Abraham and his family. The story of Abraham begins with a promise. God will bless Abraham and make him significant so that he will in turn be a blessing to the world. This is followed through with a series of more specific promises. Abraham and Sarai will have descendants who will inherit the land that they are currently residing as a foreigner. But a promise implies 
uncertainty. It has not yet become true, and it may very well never become true. There is uncertainty in what God speaks to Abraham, or to put it more bluntly, there is an uncertainty regarding the truth of what was spoken by the voice that supposedly speaks every truth. And at several points in the life of Abraham and Sarai, what God promised is challenged and threatened as it happened when the ruler of Egypt took Sarai to be one of his wives. And when such a challenge was overcome, especially ones that seemed unassailable, like again the one in Egypt, the truth of this voice gained a gravity beyond what Abraham, Sarai, and others ever thought. It became more than just what Abraham experienced or heard. The voice that spoke to them was unfolding the events around them with a will and purpose far beyond their own. Then from the meeting with a priest named Melchizedek, Abraham was able to identify this voice to a deity that the neighboring peoples worshipped, El, the deity that was believed to be the creator of the cosmos and the highest deity that rules all things. That was an important step. When you are able to put words or names to experience or ideas, they become clearer. Did you ever play a puzzle game where you try to find a hidden pattern in a picture? And once you find that pattern, like say a face in the chaos, then afterwards you can see that pattern easily whenever you look at that picture. And it's sort of like that. Now of course, this is but one of the first steps in the journey. Abraham would need to learn more and during the generations after him, people would even need to correct some of the older views and ideas that they picked up. But this was a start. Next time that God speaks to Abraham, Abraham is able to draw from everything that he has experienced and learned and engage in a conversation. God speaks, Don't be afraid, Abraham, for I am your shield and great will be your reward. And Abraham responds, O Lord God, what can you give me since I still remain childless and my heir is one of my servants? Abraham is no longer merely being presented with truth, or at least what is possibly true. He does not merely hear God speak. He levels a question to the voice that speaks to him. So far, things did not turn out as the voice spoke. Abraham has no descendants. There is now a clear line of separation between how Abraham perceived what has been happening and what the voice of God speaks. There are now two truths, one that Abraham sees and one that is being presented by the voice that speaks every truth. And the voice responds back to Abraham, that man will not be your heir, your one child born to you will be your heir. Then the voice prompts Abraham to go outside and look toward the starry sky. Count the stars if you can, because that's how many your descendants will be. And now Abraham has a choice. And it's different from the one that we examined earlier in this episode, having to choose from the different voices that call out to us. He is faced with a single voice and the truth that it promises, standing over what Abraham himself thinks the truth is. Abraham does not even have a single child, and he is already old. But the voice of God declares a future where the number of his descendants will be beyond counting. So it's a face-off between two truths, two wills, two persons. And Abraham decides to believe the voice. Now, should he have done so? After all, the voice could be lying. Or it could be that Abraham is just imagining the whole thing, maybe because of his desperation for an heir. 
At this point, he cannot know any more than he knew years ago whether it was the right decision to listen to this voice and journey to this land, leaving his home and relatives. But his wife Sarai was rescued from the ruler of Egypt, and Abram did become prosperous and strong enough to raid a powerful army and rescue his nephew. Then there was that encounter with the priest Melchizedek, and he came to learn who the voice is, or at least so he believes. Things beyond this expectation or imagination came to pass as he followed what this voice spoke in the past, so perhaps he should continue to do so. So Abraham believed. But when God speaks further, confirming that Abraham was led to this land from his home so that his descendants can one day inherit it, Abraham questions again, how can I believe that this is true? God responds by having Abraham bring some animals, which are then cut into two pieces. Then during the night, Abraham sees something like a smoking pot and a torch moving between these pieces, which in that culture signified a very strong promise. It was basically saying, I am willing to be cut to pieces like these animals if I don't do what I promised. But this promise is about a time far into the future, a time Abraham himself will never see. The voice that spoke to him and made this promise is the one that will fulfill it without Abraham long after he is gone. And so, through this encounter, Bible sketches out another aspect of the personality of God. God that speaks to us is a voice that speaks every truth, but some of the truths that this voice speaks is a promise, promise of things that have not yet happened and what often seems will never happen yet God will bring them to pass. Thus the voice of God speaks not only what is true, but will sometimes speak what is not yet true, and reality will unfold so that it will become true. God will make it true. But this poses a dilemma for those who hear God speak. What do you do if God spoke something that is not yet true? Do you just wait? Or should you make it true? After all, Everything that happens is God speaking, and that includes the things that you can do. So what if you are supposed to do something to make what God spoke true? And that is how Sarai and Abraham decided to get a surrogate to produce an heir. Now, Sarai had a handmaiden named Hagar. By the way, I keep using the word servants or handmaiden but the actual words are slaves because slavery existed in the ancient world. But in our time, the African slavery by European settlers still cast a large shadow over what the word means, and which is not to say that slavery in other times and peoples were actually kind of nice or something, but they were different. After all, even in this story, slaves could become the heir of their master's entire wealth or become the mother of the heir. Anyway, Hagar was a slave, and her mistress Sarai had the legal right to offer her as a concubine to her husband, Abram. As you can see, the Lord has kept me from having a child, she pointed out to her husband. That was reality. But the problem is, God has also spoken that they will have descendants. So to make what God spoke true, Sarai decided to take one for the team, so to speak. Some other woman will have Abraham's child, and that child will be their heir. And Abraham agreed. It seemed like a win-win proposal after all. Abraham and Sarai would finally have an heir. 
Hagar would go from a servant girl to the mother of the air, and as for God, what God spoke as the voice that speaks every truth would now become true. And what God speaks so very often calls people who hear it to act in response. So Noah built an ark, and Abram and Sarai had left their home and traveled to this land. So they went ahead with the plan, and Hagar conceived and became pregnant with Abram's child. But in all of this, they had missed something. When God spoke to Abraham that he will have descendants, God did not present him with any call to action. It was not at all like how Abraham was originally called by God to leave his home and relatives. It was rather more like the first promise that God presented to Abraham that God will bless Abraham and bless the world through him, or the later promise that his descendants will inherit a land of their own. There was nothing that called Abraham or Sarai to do in response other than to believe. But what was even more significant was how this would affect Sarai and Hagar. When Hagar became pregnant, it confirmed a terrible truth. It really was Sarai who was unable to have a child. It was her fault that they had no heir. Now today, being unable to bear a child may be a great loss and a tragedy, but it was far worse in their time. You would have been considered a profound failure. You would have failed to leave a legacy, to secure a future. And now that Abraham and Hagar had a child, it was Sarai who was the failure. Now, Sarai would legally be the mother of the child that Hagar would bear, and in that sense, she would still be part of the promise that God made with Abraham. But that was just mere legality. It would have felt to Sarai that God had left her out of the promise with Abraham. Sarai was the reason why what God spoke to Abraham had not yet come to pass. She was now a mere outsider with no part in what God spoke. And Hagar realized this, or at least she knew enough that she began to treat her mistress with contempt as a failure. Struck with grief and humiliation, Sarai went to Abraham and cried out, This is all your fault. I gave up everything so that you could have an heir, and now look at me. What would God think of this? But see, Abraham loved Sarai far more than he could ever care for the servant girl of his wife. Legally speaking, Abraham could have taken other wives to secure an heir long ago, but he had not. And it was only at Sarai's behest that he did so. So Abraham tells Sarai to do whatever she wants at Hagar because she is, after all, her mistress. So Sarai strikes back harshly at Hagar for every insult real or imagined. Now defenseless against her anger and unable to endure her treatment, Hagar runs away into the wilderness and rests by a spring of water. There, the book of Genesis recounts, an angel of the Lord finds her. The ancient Hebrew word for angel means messenger because angels are depicted as beings that speak for God. So as a reminder, All of reality is God speaking, and every truth we learn is God speaking, and in the case of Abraham, God can speak as the voice that speaks what is true or what will become true. But in the Bible, there are also entities, whether human individuals or superhuman beings, who relay what God is speaking to other people. We'll explore this idea in other episodes, however. For this story, it is enough to know that a messenger from God converses with Hagar. Hagar, slave to Sarai, why are you here and where are you going? The angel asks. Hagar replies, I'm running away from my mistress. 
The angel then speaks what God is speaking to her. Return to your mistress, God speaks, then follows with a promise, a special promise to a slave girl hiding in the wilderness. Your child will become a numerous people, God says. He will be like a wild animal who can overcome hostility of others. And you shall name him Ishmael, which means God hears, for God has heard your hardship. And with this, God declares that not only does God speak, but God also hears. God not only speaks to Hagar as the voice of truth, but God hears her. Indeed, God speaks to her because God has heard her. And Hagar is deeply moved and awestricken, and she says, You are El Roy, meaning God sees. God has seen her, and so now she has seen God. So she returns to give birth to a son named Ishmael. God hears. We hear God in every truth. We see God in all of reality. But those who encounter God learn that God also hears us and God sees us. And what God speaks to people is more than just some truth, however significant, that we can learn or discover. They can be brought into a personal promise. And whether God has truly heard us and has spoken to us personally will be demonstrated by whether the promise is kept, whether reality will unfold as the voice of God said it would. And this is how God spoke to Abraham. But in the wilderness, unknown to Abraham, this is how God also spoke to Hagar, a slave girl in his household. So in this way, God speaks to people, great people, insignificant people, people we know, people we never noticed, people overlooked and forgotten, calling them all to their own respective journey, calling them with a promise made specially for them. And it is through these journeys that people will learn whether God that spoke to them really is the voice that speaks every truth and makes his promise come true. But this then brings us back to Sarai. What of God's promise to her? Or was God speaking only to Abraham? Was she left out even while her servant girl was given a promise of her own? Did God see Hagar but not Sarai? So please join me next time as we continue to explore how the promise of God unfolded for Abraham, Hagar, and Sarai. And please support this series by following, subscribing, and sharing this series with others and by rating it on your Apple Podcast platform. You can also support this series at buymeacoffee.com. The link for that is in the episode description.